Welcome back to the Live Young podcast. I'm so excited to be here today with Caleb Greer, who happens to be my healthcare provider and has been such an integral part of my journey. And now so many other people that I know because I love to share the wealth of information, the knowledge, the love, the healing with anyone who is in need. So Caleb Greer, of, I always say this wrong, but it's Dasein Health. Say it, is that right? Close enough, yeah. Dasein. Dasein. Dasein Health. You can edit that. <laughs> um, anyways, Caleb's office is in South Austin, and he's just built out a bigger practice with so many more like functionality healing modalities, including cold plunge and, and red light therapy and these incredible ARX machines, which we'll speak to. Sort of this like holistic um, view, journey, experience of functional medicine. And if you're unfamiliar with functional medicine, I'm going to let Caleb define what that is. What is functional medicine? Sure. So function, there's two different ways to think about it. So functional medicine is really the philosophy that goes into approaching health through the lens of lifestyle and mm -hmm. things that people can do just by, you know, integrating the appropriate diet, integrating sleep and uh, stress management, detoxification. So really the lens of letting the body do its own work to heal and then setting it up as well as possible to do so. Where the integrative part of that conversation comes in is actually the utilization of different interventions. So that's where we use either nutraceuticals or pharmaceuticals or IV therapy, really anything that we add to the body's innate way of healing to kind of augment or help it do that process mm. is where the integrative side comes into it. So functional medicine is more like the fundamentals, like the foundation of, of health and well-being. And then using all the tools that we have available from the, the different classes of, of tools that we can use is kind of the application of functional medicine. Yeah, and I think it's been so incredible for me because you sort of really bridge East and West. So there's a lot of, I don't know if you look at it this way, but there's a, a huge spiritual component in your work. And I think in my work with you, it's been so um, integrated to work with a, a male practitioner to actually like look at the body as a whole, see what my symptoms showed up as, look underneath, you know, apply functional medicine um, from like a prescriptive standpoint, and then mm -hmm. also go into the why and sort of like work all around, like to go deeper into like what was going on with my relationships my relationship with my body, how is it manifesting physically, um, which is why I think your work is so profound. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, totally true. Um, with that said, who comes to you? Why do they come to you? And is why they come to you um, actually what they're, they need? Yeah, so initially, you know, when I first started practicing, it was a lot of the a lot of the patients that came were coming from a pain background because that's the practice that I was in before. It was primarily dealing with pain and then the sequela that comes from that, whether it manifests in, you know, their their weight condition or if it's, you know, an anatomical problem that we're solving from an interventional perspective, or, you know, maybe it's a hormone deficiency, maybe it's menopause, it kind of led to an increased susceptibility to osteoporosis and fractures and those kinds of things. So, you know, out of that real symptom-based analysis came more of an integrative approach to, okay, yes, you have pain. That's one um, spectrum of your complaints. What else can we do again from the functional side of it to make sure that nutrition is on point where you're not eating inflammatory foods, you're mm -hmm. maybe avoiding things that you know, you're not used to or that you're not aware that things could be impacting your pain in a certain fashion. Um, you know, again, getting their sleep right, getting their stress management corrected. Eventually what that developed into is where people sought me out independently for 
hormone replacement, especially, you know, the menopausal population um, that just didn't have a great, a great way to get their needs met or to have people listen to them really. So, you know, opening into that world of a very obvious problem of hot flashes and night sweats and weight gain and mood changes, that's really where the fundamental growth was in my practice. And then by proxy, you know, everyone wanted their husbands to come in afterwards, maybe their children that were, you know, not really children anymore, but, you know, their kids in their 30s and 40s. Um, but ultimately to say, look, there's something that they're not doing correctly in terms of how they feel. Mm-hmm. Um, can we figure something out? Honestly, you know, most people come after seeing other providers kind of figuring out that the mainstream conventional way of, of doing things wasn't helping them, or maybe they started medications that helped for a little bit and they figured out, well, this isn't a long-term strategy that I want to employ. So, you know, from anywhere from weight loss and obesity to depression and anxiety and hormonal conditions, whether it's just fatigue, hair loss, I mean, thyroid problems, a lot of endocrine stuff. Mm. And that went across the lifespan. So anyone from 18 to people in their 90s we're coming in to kind of just figure if something is wrong, is there something to do about it? Mm. And that's kind of where we started. And, and so now it's that same kind of population, but now that my practice is kind of full, it's really been sweet to see people that have been with me for three or four years just kind of get to the point where now there's nothing really wrong with them and they can really focus on optimizing and enhancing their health from that um, from that point forward. Yeah, I think it's so interesting, like just hearing you speak to that when I think about the healers that I've worked with and how they've held space for me and in my journey, like started where I was and then went on this path and like, then not just like only excavated what was going on underneath, but also then Mm -hmm. integrated and in this place of like maintenance, maintaining, and then just, as you said, optimizing. And in so many ways you hold space, like you're serving medicine. And just as Christina, who I interview and speak to often, she serves medicine, she holds space, how I work with my clients, but at the same time, like you're also serving your sort of medicine. So it's been such an honor and a pleasure to work with you. And I know that like, in terms of like symptoms, you know, I showed up at your practice. I had just moved from New York City. I was, you know, in New York for 11 years, burning the candle at both ends, you know, working out like a monster, working like a monster and just stepping on this path of like, holy shit, 30 years of subconscious trauma. And Mm. at the time that I met you, I didn't even realize it was that deep. With that said, I'd been to the best celebrity doctors, like all the goop ones in New York City, Mm. who some were like, you know, I wasn't getting my period regularly. So they're like, you need to have more sex and do acupuncture. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Um, You need to change your diet. Well, doc, I eat sardines, avocado, and sweet potatoes and red meat sometimes. So what do you want me to eat? or just, you know, other doctors who were like, tell me about your relationships and all fair and well, and they're incredible people. And there wasn't like enough, you know, understanding of what was going on under the hood, given I wasn't clear on my trauma journey yet. But when I showed up to you, it was like, I felt better, good, um, good enough, because I always felt good enough because, you know, I eight to 10 hours of sleep a night, healthy diet, you know, worked out every day. I was as far as I knew in my body, but it wasn't until like you did pretty invasive blood work that it was like, okay, my thyroid was sluggish, which is why my nails weren't growing or I always felt tired. Mm. Um, I think I had like really high selenium, which I was like, I eat a lot of Brazilian nuts. (laughs) Um, I think I had some like low iron and low estrogen. So when I came to you, it was like, we did all of this blood work and just started working through like 
my glucose levels, my hormone levels. Um, and then the biggest thing when I first entered here was like my gut stuff. Yeah. Um, and you put me through an entire gut reset. But again, I knew that I was like walking into like uprooting a lot of trauma. But when I came to you and I was open about that to the extent that I was, and then I started working with psychedelic assisted therapy, like just as an example for me, like what is your take on like, like my experience when I first walked in? Yeah. So, I mean, number one, just kind of getting an air of, of the kind of person that's walking in, right? So you're, you're very strong. You have a very hard, um, set personality where you know a lot too, you know, it's, mm-hmm. so it's, there's a, there's a perspective from the practitioner side where meeting someone where they're at is really kind of molding your own responses and your own countertransferences to how that person's making you feel, but really staying open and, and objective. So, you know, when, when you come in and you've done all this blood work, you've done this work with other people, it's, it's a, an indicator for me to say, okay, well, that's great because now we have a whole list of things that hasn't worked. We can rule a lot of things out and actually not spend a whole lot of time doing things that are, you know, might be helpful, but they haven't been helpful because you've done them. So the other aspect of kind of meeting where, meeting you where you were was also intervening in a pharmaceutical manner, which mm-hmm. was kind of antithetical to, I think, where your initial position was yeah. on functional medicine. So getting to just kind of explain that, you know, interventions are interventions, no matter where they come from, no matter who funded the, the research to use them, you know, there are tools, there are inputs and there are outputs. And so whatever we use to input, we want to see, you know, a measurable change. And ultimately just kind of having the conversation that none of these medications are things that you need to marry. We're just dating them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so typically using something for a short period of time to get a measurable outcome, um, both subjectively and objectively based on measurements help us understand where to go next. So if we get your gut healing out of the way, if we get the bugs that were there, if we get the SIBO controlled and then repair the gut afterwards, you know, what is still present and what is not. Mm-hmm. And then being able to kind of sleuth out, well, if your gut is healed, you can eat foods better. You can kind of tolerate what foods are you know going to be in your diet and what you can really just avoid, like, you know, still having issues with non-cooked greens, for example. You know, it's not that the food isn't healthy, but for your body, it's just not ready to actually tolerate and digest those things. Furthermore, looking at your hormones, Mm -hmm. right? You know, seeing and distinguishing your personality type and how you were, you know, overtraining and doing all the things that were on paper healthy, but your system just couldn't tolerate it. Mm -hmm. So in a gentle way, kind of pointing you to understand on your own that what you're doing isn't working, and so, you know, again, it's not telling you, hey, this isn't working. Go and do this. Go and do this. Go and do this. It's just saying, hey, with what you've been doing for the past five, ten years, are you closer to where you want to be in your health? Mm-hmm. Do you know where you want to be in your health? Or do you just know that where you're at is not where you want to be? So kind of just parsing that whole thing out really helps you understand from a destination perspective where you are, how far is that from where you want to be, and is what you're doing working? And so just kind of exposing that in a manner that you can just personally dissolve the part of you that's attached to it as far as like that's what you've done Mm -hmm. and open up space to say, okay, maybe this isn't working for me and that's not necessarily my fault, but it is my responsibility to kind of take this information moving forward 
and see if something is different after I do it. Yeah, I, and everything you're saying, it just like I just picture this idea of shadow and that you're just really <clears throat> shining a light on what I know, but I don't want to face yet. And yeah. you do that in such a gentle, giant manner. And also in working with you for the past two years, I've seen you soften in the way that you hold space because I remember even the first appointment I had with you and I said, well, I, Caleb, I really want babies. And you looked at my chart and you looked at my age and you looked at me and you go, well, you better get on that. And I was like, <laughs> like deflated. Like I left and I, I, I think I texted like two of my girlfriends, one who's like a, a pretty big doctor. And she's like, fuck that guy. Like I had babies when I was 43. And, but that was two years ago. And even now, and like, you know, seeing your family and your children in this practice, it's, and how we've related, you've softened into this, like knowing that in holding space, they're also the empathy you've always carried has, has that, like expanded. So yeah. I'm so grateful for that. And um, in this way that you sort of shed light on shadow, when I came to you, I knew I was overtraining. Did I want to know I was overtraining? No, because I felt like, you know, a gladiator. Like yeah. it's also what had enabled me to survive in a way of like overtraining, really strengthening my body as far as I could so that I could um, hold the, the, whatever mental like mess I was, I was carrying, you know, it just made me feel better. Yeah. Um, and when we had these conversations and it takes time, you know, like, as you know, and I want to make this very clear, healing takes time. And one of my biggest lessons and takeaways from my experience is it's not up to us how long it takes and there is no timeline. Mm -hmm. Right. But so you bringing like my attention to this and then me saying, okay, well, I don't like taking medicine or supplements. I don't like anything extra in my body. I don't like Tylenol, Advil. I don't like salt. I mean, I remember <laughs> that was one of the things. I like, you were like, you need to eat salt, Olivia. That was like one of the things from the blood work. Anyways, you, I took it upon myself to listen mm. and start doing the regimen that you prescribed and started to feel better and pretty rapidly feel better and maintain that sort of homeostasis. And as I started feeling better, you know, I was coming home emotionally, mentally, you know, holistically. So like, I didn't feel that urge of anxiety to like get up and like, just, you know, chase the wind like I was doing, you know, because in this journey, it was all about really slowing down and coming back into my body so I could hear what my body needed as opposed to what my mind, my anxiety, what that script was running. Yeah. Um, so all that to say is like, I trusted you. And I came to trust myself to be like, okay, well, I'll try these supplements. Okay, I'll do these things. And even like today, you know, there's like this bit of resistance of like, why am I taking this? Because I think the baseline for me now is like, I feel really good. Mm -hmm. But what I can't see is underneath and it's in the blood work. Yeah. But it's just trusting that you certainly know what you're doing yeah. and you're not over prescribing or prescribing me for any other reason that like we want to get me to like you know the gladiator without needing to right. be outrageous yeah and, and part of that process is you taking the things and understanding that okay this is not just trying to manipulate blood work to look a certain way like we're expecting and i think you know laying out expectations is a great thing for practitioners to do like look we're going to do this for three months. We should see this, this, and this. And then if we don't, then we course correct because, you know, we should notice a phenomenological difference in how you feel and how you sleep and how you perform. And if you don't, then that's an indicator that we need to, like, readdress what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with you and, and how funny it is that you do things, you feel better. And because you feel better, it's like, okay, well, 
I don't need those things that help me get to this point anymore. Right. And sometimes, you know, with half-lives and everything, it takes two or three weeks to be like, okay, yeah, I didn't need it, right? It's been two or three weeks. I took it out. And then you get an email like a month later, like, hey, <laughs> my period didn't come this month or, you know, I'm starting to get really fatigued or my hair's falling out. I'm like, hey, well, are you still doing the program? Like, what's, what's, uh, what's changed? And, you know, evidently, you take things out. And we, I explain, you know, again, in a gentle manner that, okay, you can do that, but here are the expectations for withdrawing those, those things. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you age and as different things kind of come into play with health span longevity, the assumption that things will just continue as they did in youth and in, um, yeah, in youth is not going to be there forever. And so again, you know, I always tell people with an increased health span and longevity, the need to intervene and make sure that genetic programming and well-being is akin to that age that you want to stay um, functionally in, right? So when someone is 60 years old and they say, oh, well, you know, because of age, I have these problems and this and this, and it just is what it is. All right. My doctor told me it's just aging. You know, I'm doing well, I'm still doing well for being 60. Mm. And that's never a good place to be. Like, I don't want you to be well for 60. I want you to be 60 and be well for a 35 or 40 year old. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to reverse time. But that being said, it's making sure that everything we can do from a hormonal perspective, from a nutritional perspective, from a pharmaceutical perspective with just things that can increase longevity by you know, reducing the, the chronic d- disease risk. Those are all things that people eventually kind of latch onto because not only do they trust what we've done initially, but they say, okay, well, this has helped me get to this point. I'm interested in what else we can do to promote my health moving forward before I start to feel bad. And so then it becomes more of a conversation around, all right, we can use rapamycin, we can use metformin, we can use berberine, even though there's not a problem. But, you know, based on how the body works and how physiology runs, there is good evidence to suggest that if we keep your blood pressure controlled, if we keep your hematocrit below a certain level, if we keep you know, all these different factors that we can measure in a certain range, then there's a pretty good chance that you'll add years onto your life and that those years will also be full of health and vitality. I think, you know, so much of my experience and like sort of my message is all about, you know, everything we need is inside mm. and how the internal systems reflect externally. Like, I firmly believe you um, You only look as good as you feel, right? And I know that when, you know, people come to you and I come to you and you're not sleeping, like that's merely a symptom or, you know, the aging or the um, just feeling lethargic or the being tired or the stress, like whatever conversations we've had, whether it starts with blood work, it, it then goes, you know, even to a deeper le- level, let's look at your relationships, your relationships to self, like what's going on in your work life, your relationship to stress, like how you're stressing your body, but really how your mind is stressed. And so this functional medicine from this like really high level standpoint is you're, you're bringing people back to life. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so beautiful. Um, I really believe it's God's work. And it's been interesting in like sort of just this um, releasing any stigma around even taking a supplement, like trusting you as a health provider to be able to hold this whole journey. And I know when people come to you, they just come with the symptom. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm tired, you know, whatever it is, my stamina is low, like I'm getting fat. And 
the way that you work too, it's very much in my mind, I, it's like a concierge doctor, if you will. It's like, it's a monthly retainer. And I think that was what was so attractive to me in the beginning, because I would start taking something or something would feel off and I was able to contact you and Mm -hmm. you hold space because similar to how I work with my clients, it's like you want them to then be okay and be able to like go on their journey. Um, But that takes handholding in, you know, in real time, right? So someone comes to you, are they surprised at first how this works or are they open to, oh, well, I'm getting fat and it's not just because of what I'm eating we look at my blood and like my hormones are off. My metabolic health is shot. My glucose monitor is, you know, dipping and like, what is the, um, beyond me? Cause I know I'm a special case. <laughs> Caleb, at the beginning, if you didn't hear from me, you used to get worried. <laughs> I was like emailing all the time, but you know, how does that work when someone shows up? Is it, are, is it, are people more open to it or is it, um, anxiety inducing? Like, so, you know, I think the the nice thing about where my initial clientele kind of came from was I was their first foray into functional medicine. So, you know, a lot of practices get built up and their whole um, messaging is based on, you know, root cause medicine, like all these different things. So when people go, they have an understanding or they've been to a different alternative medicine provider and there's kind of the understanding of what to expect. Now, initially, when I first had my practice model just in, in insurance and there was no membership or, or retainer fee, you know, I was I was blessed to kind of show people the way, so to speak, and until they were really exposed to either having to shop around for different providers once I you know changed my model, you know, the understanding of what I provided was so far above what they could find elsewhere that it kind of helped them realize that, you know, this is different first and foremost, mm-hmm. and that the way that I do it is also different. So I think everyone still comes from, from a symptom management perspective, but after we initially remove those symptoms and again one of my pillars of of philosophical approach is to reduce suffering in the here and now and so you know if that means giving people sleeping medications to to battle insomnia like if they're not sleeping well i can give them all the magnesium and all of the you know melatonin or whatever sleep that they can have and it's still not impact their sleep if they're not sleeping then hardly anything else is going to improve now again it's a conversation about the temporal aspect of how long we're going to do that and, and what to expect. But that was another thing that I really think helped people kind of trust me was that I was listening to the the symptoms that they were presenting, giving those symptoms appropriate weight, and then intervening in a way that made them feel heard. Mm. So that when they came back and they understood, okay, well, this guy is going to do things that are going to help. And so the next thing that I suggest is probably going to have a greater weight and then you do those things. And again, it just starts to build this level of trust that I'm not just a healthcare provider. You know, I'm a, I'm an actual, you know, concierge that's, that's interested in their well-being, not for any kind of gain personally, but, you know, it's tied to my own intrinsic motivation to want to piece their puzzle together as, as well as possible. Mm. And you know, part of what happens after we fix their physical puzzles and we do their blood work and we kind of correct the things that they can see being corrected, not only, you know, personally feeling better, but then seeing that all these numbers that were red are going to yellow or going to green, right? So just from a, um, a visual perspective, uh, they, they feel confident in what we're doing is making them feel better mm-hmm. and that that's not just placebo, right? It's not just a, an effect that we're doing from taking stuff. That branches into the next part, which you talked about, was the emotional health and kind of figuring out, well, 
you had all these problems, right? The physical problems have been relatively eliminated, but life still isn't working itself out in the way that you want it to. And so that's when we dive into the deeper assessment of, okay, I see you're taking an antidepressant, right? What's that about? Where did mm-hmm. that start? Why did you still, you know, why are you still taking it? It's been 20 years since this incident. And where was the conversation around expectations for how long this is going to be utilized? How do these things actually work, right? Diving into neurochemistry, helping people understand on a deeper level that, you know, taking an hour and a half with somebody lets you do, right? You just can't have that kind of conversation in 15 minutes. Right. And so, again, holding space, helping people understand that if, if you listen to them, they will tell you how they perceive the world. And if you know how they perceive the world, you can adapt what they believe and what they value mm. and help them actually be cohesive. Because if someone explicitly states that they believe or value something and they're behaving in a way that's contrary to that, you can just show them. There's a disconnect. And they're yeah. like, okay, well, this is what you want. This is what you're doing. That's not helping you get to what you want that you said you want. Right? So it's not me telling them how to do things or how to live or, or any of that. They know where they want to be once we do this exercise and they can actually lay out, okay, well, I see that the way that I pursued this relationship is just a mimicry of relationships of my past. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm playing the same patterns forward and forward and forward. And I'm never actually to remove myself. I'm never able to remove myself from the situation for long enough to actually see what I'm doing. So really just shining a light, like you said, either on the shadow or, you know, maybe they're overindulged in their shadow, right? Maybe it's, they're they're playing into all the negative aspects of themselves because it's a protective mechanism. So helping them actually see their own light is part of that problem too. And again, it's just been such an interesting experience to see how, be it whether like from a spiritual perspective or emotional perspective, like life is showing up um, and how that is reflected in the external symptom of like the hormones are off kilter or the adrenals are shot, always exhausted or lack of boundaries in my relationships have led me to, um, I don't know if they would manifest, they probably manifested in not sleeping Mm. because I felt violated and that kept me up all night knowing that I was betraying myself in a way. It wasn't about somebody else's behavior. It was about me not standing tall on my own Yeah, and being able to come to you and, and speak through these things. And, um, I'm pretty much of an open vessel in the way that I share, but it's been really helpful too, not just to have that experience, but to have it from a male perspective who can see from the outside in beyond, um, just, you know, my microcosm world from a feminine point of view. Um, and you know, with that, sort of brings me to this idea of trauma and how trauma manifests in the body, how it shows up symptomatically. Um, And even when you said the example of like antidepressants for 20 years, you've been on these things, has anyone spoken to you about how long you'll be on these things? Or is there a game plan around this? Because, you know, I believe someone said to me the other day, well, you're in wellness. And at first I was like taken aback by that because I have a culinary background and I don't, drink green juice and do yoga. Like I believe I I live a a whole life. And when I thought about it, I was like, well, the opposite of wellness is illness. So if you're not well, you might be ill. And oftentimes the ill isn't like a cold. It's this 20 year ago event that's manifesting, metastasizing in your body and showing up symptomatically. Mm -hmm. So this word trauma is loaded. There's big trauma, there's little trauma, but when people show up to you, whether they address it or not, they probably don't on the first sitting. Um, how does that conversation unravel in terms of like the body keeps the score? Like in your mind, in your practice from a functional medicine standpoint? 
So the, the way that I look at trauma and really any event that kind of has long-standing implications on how someone's going to, number one, perceive the world and then act in accordance to that perception. So, you know, for example, if someone has a, a trauma that's not, it's not classically defined as a trauma, right? They would say, you know, maybe their mom didn't come and pick them up at school when they were supposed to, right? And they're, you know, four or five years old. And, and, and that kind of registers as I can't depend on someone mm-hmm. or I need to do everything by myself. Mm-hmm. And there's just, there are defense mechanism coping strategies that are helpful in response to a trauma that really aren't traumatic at that point until you start to notice that that event or that strategy is no longer helpful moving forward, you know, as an adult. So I think, you know, the transition from early defenses and coping strategies that turn into behaviors that manifest in that time frame to help them survive, but they never grow up, mm-hmm. right? So they're kind of stuck in that stage of, well, I have to do everything myself and no one's going to help me or I can't depend on my caretakers, right? There's just this kind of internal betrayal that they turn into a net positive to help them survive and cope. But, you know, they get into the business world, they get into college, they get into a successful position and they don't know how to delegate. They don't know how to not take on the whole burden of their um, of their world. Mm. And so helping someone understand that, look, it wasn't a trauma in the way that you think about when you hear trauma, you know, especially if they've developed this excessive conscientiousness or this really big dutifulness, right? Their personality just kind of latches onto their ego themselves. They can do it. And then helping them soften and realize that, okay, I'm not a four-year-old that depends on my mom to come pick me up from school. Like, I don't have to take that strategy into adult life where I need to be able to delegate, where I need to have help because I can't do it all if I'm going to keep doing this for a long period of time. So that's, you know, one example of, you know, event that triggered a behavioral response and a shift in how they see the world that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But if they kept going, it would become bad because now they can't actually live the life they want. Again, moving back towards, do you know what you want? Do you know how to get there? And do you know that what you're doing right now is either helping or hurting in that trajectory? Mm. So really taking an objective look at trauma, not feeding into the event so much, but just helping people understand that these events happened, clearing the emotion around it, whether we're using psychedelic-assisted therapy or transcranial magnetic therapy, just something to kind of detach objectively to see the event as a child to you know kind of remove their child self from the here and now mm. and grow up it's it's just super powerful and it's super potent and it really helps people that have been doing therapy for a long time that kind of either way too much on events they're trying to figure out why this happened what's what's going to happen next you know popping up little anxieties about not solving problems and not actually laying down boundaries to prevent those things from happening again the failure to accept something and then to understand that that thing could happen again and then to fail to set up boundaries or to map out that territory appropriately, that's what leads to more anxiety because there's just uncertainty. And to the degree that someone's developed strategies to overcome that uncertainty by taking control, by fighting, by you know doing other behaviors that they can put themselves in the control driver's seat, mm it's effective until it's not, right? Until things happen and kind of throw your control mechanisms off of their rocker and say, there's something underlying here that I need to address in order to fully, you know, live into my, my here and now, right? To yeah. fully express my myself. And, you know, that process is something that happens after the initial trust is developed because, you know, number one, as, as a male and as as young as I am, there is this kind of resistance for, 
you know, females to express what's happened to them, right? To, to, to trust a, a male provider and with information also, you know, to have someone really listen and respond in a way that men really kind of haven't for them or they just haven't shown up. So there is a little bit of transference there with, with some of my clients, but again, building trust on the physical side of things and helping them in that manner just opens the door to expose this whole other area of potential that just hasn't been tapped into because of resistance to who's providing that insight. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting topic all around. It's such a, like I said, a buzzword trauma, you know, and when I think about the amount of control I used to hold on to, the amount of armor that I built up and granted my story is extreme in a lot of ways in terms of like the amount of sexual trauma I've experienced. Um, but I also believe that I was given the story in a lot of ways because I've found a way to destigmatize the shame around it and speak mm -hmm. to it openly. So when you start opening that conversation, people then trust you to hold or they repel you because it's like so much. Regardless, you know, how my trauma manifested, I didn't remember any of it when I started this, was was the control, was like the constant doing, the overworking, the perfectionism, the self-hate, the, you know, managing everything so that I would never be out of control. Mm -hmm. And the irony in trauma is that because my experience happened so young and continued to happen, I lived in freeze. My body was frozen. And when traumas, you know, started snowballing and happened, high school, college, et cetera, my body was frozen, my voice was taken, and so I couldn't defend myself, no matter how much of a fighter I was. So my response then was to become that fighter. Mm -hmm. um, and in this way that I was so strong, nothing could you know, break me. And in the past two years, three years, I've really had to soften, and I found it so impactful, you know, sort of on the opposite end of what you're saying, is to be in a space where I can, uh, share with an empathetic man and you, you have males on your staff who they don't, you don't come from, you know, a judgment standpoint. It's just offering a different viewpoint into the feminine mystique of like to really excel. I believe as a woman in this world, you know, the feminine energy is we are creators by being as opposed to doing. And so, you know, to all my women out there whom I love so much, all of you, you know, I think this idea of like, never asking for help. You know, it took me years to step into that idea of like receiving help and just being like, please, like, yes. Um, so in that sense, like women come and they might be, you know, taken aback at first, but like this softening. And I know that you've had to soften to hold a space that can be soft to just receive this. But when a woman comes in and she seems to be shut down or is, um, maybe cognizant of trauma, doesn't want to share it, but like, it's just something that, you know, you know, how do you dance around that? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so it really depends on, you know, just kind of how you, you can attune to what someone is willing to and not willing to express. And so, I mean, obviously looking at micro expressions on the face, just when you start talking about things, like you can know on an intuitive level to some degree that someone has something in their past, you know, where they mark it off on their paperwork or not. And so just kind of, bringing things up like Trump, you know, did anything happen in your you know history that could be relevant to the way you're perceiving and behaving in the world? No. Mm. You know, again, until they start to bring up relationships or something that really points out behavioral maladaptations, it's kind of a conversation we don't have. Right. right. And so really, I don't like to bring it up until they do something that allows me a foot in the door to then kind of say, 
okay, why do you think you do that thing that you just talked about, right? Why do you think that your first response to um, a challenge is aggression? Or, you know, why can't you take a step back and hold space to think for yourself, right? If you're having an argument with your partner and you feel like you have to engage, if you don't actually know how to engage, then, you know, helping them understand, like, okay, why can't you just take a break and say, hey, I need a second to think about this and disengage from the argument and move forward back in when you feel like you've thought things through, you've written down responses, and you can actually kind of reality test how you're feeling in that moment. So going back to the original question, how do I navigate when people, I'll just say in general, because males have the same mm. resistance. I mean, they, they're kind of actually more attached to their defensive strategies. So kind of opening their eyes to, again, it goes back to if they don't know how what they're doing is impacting where they want to be, it's a non-starter. So they have to understand where they want to be, like what their five or 10 year plan is, right? And so once we kind of figure that whole thing out, they'll do their past authoring or they'll start to talk about, you know, with their upbringing and, and what their relationships are like now, how they deal with the home life, if they have children, how their relationship is with their children and kind of parse out, well, okay, that all seems good. And it seems like you kind of met your own expectations for where you thought you would be at this point in life. Why are you not happy mm. or why are you not content? Do you find meaning and purpose in what you're doing? And that conversation really hits people hard mm. because number one, they don't know the answer to the questions most of the time. And if they do have an answer, it's superficial. And if I poke it a little bit further, they really get this, they get this just drop in countenance. And that drop in countenance is a door to open and say, don't feel bad about where you are, right? There's no fault, there's no shame in getting to this point and understanding that the path that you followed up to this point, really, it's just the path that you followed. Mm. But it, being cognizant and being aware and being kind of awakened to the perspective of you don't have to continue in this manner is almost news to most people because they think that just because of who they are and what they've done and everything in their past, that the rest is laid out in the, in the, future. In the future, right? And that's not the case. And yeah. so part of design is understanding where you came from, how it manifests in the here and now, and then how re-narrativizing your past can change where you are and then augment where you want to be. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful. And in a way that, you know, we get so stuck in these stories of ourselves and I've always said, you know, self-definition is our definition. Mm -hmm. Particularly in this day and age when we live in such a digital world where everything's two-dimensional and people think that they know you or you think that you have to be one way so that people understand you or nobody understands you. And um, I think so much of my journey has been, in a way, interesting for me to understand and through your lens, too helpful. But I felt very called to share my experience in real time, whether it was through intimacy diaries in my relationship or through, you know, uncovering trauma in real time. And, you know, now so, sort of looking out in, there were so many reasons for that. One was, you know, I felt like I really needed to be seen because I wasn't seeing myself. Two was, it was the way that I was just indulging in therapy, the way that I was writing. And you could then ask, well, why did you share it? And because sharing it almost dissociated myself from it, so it felt less mine, less mm -hmm. painful. And, um, you know, in that, I've I tried to separate myself, but, you know, I'll run into people I haven't seen for years, and there's this weird energy at first. And I have to check myself and be like, oh, well, first, that's not about me. But 
they know so much about me at this point, my story could potentially be very triggering for them or they just don't know what to say. And regardless, it's been taking myself even out of that story to be like, I feel clear in the way that I represented myself and how anybody's interpreted isn't about me. It doesn't matter at this point. I own my story as when you say like, is whatever's in the past shaping your future? And for me, my answer is now no. It's that I've experienced this and it's actually shaped me in the way that I'm so proud of where I've been because of where I am. But it took that journey and it also took a lot of help and perspective from your lens to be like, well, why are you sharing so much in real time? Oh, well, let me think about that. Hmm. You know, this like wound of like chasing my dad's love, like mm. does he see me kind of thing. And I think the last time that I was here, you sort of just like said that and said something to me and to the extent of, well, you're still posting things like it feels like for attention. And I had to sit in that because it felt like a, a jab, mm. a poke. And the poke was so necessary because it wasn't even, it was certainly from my ego, but it was this sadness of like, oh, still wanting my dad to see me. My dad doesn't have Instagram, doesn't even have a computer. But it was like this need for male attention, male love mm -hmm. externally. And because of that need, I was getting the attention from that space of like old men gawking and like, that's not the attention I was looking for, right? right? But it, that was such a helpful male perspective. And it was just through that, that was like this quick shift of what's my why? Because that's certainly not my why. Yeah. Right. And so just in, in that comment, like I would love to because I know that my former pattern, very repeating, recurring pattern of chasing that is an, it's an overwhelming, overriding epidemic of sorts of women feeling not seen by the first you know male in their life and how that manifests. So I would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. So, you know, in every personality in, 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 I guess, any personality that a female has, and I guess we're just going to talk about, you know, women for, for now, but <clears throat> the more neurotic someone is or the more conscientious, like those, <clears throat> those interactions with your male caregiver will manifest in different ways. And so, you know, for you having brothers and having a father that was very successful and very driven and, you know, like you said, loving, but didn't give you as much time because he was busy, you know, doing things to provide for the family. Mm. And, you know, almost being seen as one of your brothers and not as a girl, right, is, is something that you struggled with and that you kind of shared. And so when we got to the point where you were sharing these things and you were kind of sharing the things with me and like, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Is this too much? And it just kind of got down to the root of why are you doing what you're doing, like you said? And then what is this providing for you that you couldn't either provide for yourself or that you're looking for provision in a manner that you don't have to risk mm -hmm. a relationship for, right? So this kind of boils down to seeing your whole relationship spectrum, not just romantic, but friendships and um, professional relationships also, and then your relationship with your social following. So kind of parsing out where the wounds were and not, not necessarily a trauma, right? Just something that your brain transformed into a narrative that led to you pursuing male attention. And then also, you know, with what happened with that very earliest trauma that you had, not having a mature cognitive understanding of what was happening, mm. right? Not even knowing it was wrong, that it just felt a certain way. But it also made you feel betrayed because, you know, <clears throat> this part of you was taken in a manner that felt like you should have been 
continually with, right, mm-hmm. in, in some sort of manner. And so, you know, when that individual kind of left you, it left a hole. And right. it wasn't even like the Stockholm Syndrome type of presentation, but this demand or this need for that kind of validation because you just weren't getting it from the closest males in your life led to, at least what we're trying to explore, led to this reactive exploration of social accolades and you know starting businesses and looking like this elite female that then attracted men also in that kind of demographic. And so it was interesting when we first started communicating because you had this very masculine presentation, like you just, you're a baller and you're successful and you're doing all these things up top, but that feminine nature and energy that you craved, like wanting to have your menstrual cycle, wanting to be closer to, you know, being able to track all of your um, hormonal shifts, right? There was this desire from inside wanting to have a baby, right? Wanting to have all these different aspects and not just to have a kid, but to care for it and to be a maternal, right? Mm -hmm. Those instincts needed to be felt and helping you understand that you can step into femininity and away from masculine, not not divorcing yourself from it, but integrating a whole person, right? It's integrating the Adam and the Eve, right? It's having the ability to organize chaos into order, but also to see that chaos and birth new things and, you know, interject new ideas and creativity in conjunction with that order. So it's this dance between these two bodies that help you understand how to relate to all things, mm-hmm. not just to one side of your personality. So I think just softening um, in that regard kind of helped us both understand this narrative wasn't super helpful for where you yeah. wanted to be. Yeah, and in that just elaborates, because if, if people aren't necessarily familiar with the analogy that you're making or the, the situation, because of a sexual trauma when I was very young, Mm-hmm. There was this part of me that I didn't even understand just because that wasn't clear when I was that young, but that sexualized myself because that's what I thought would bring me male attention. Right. So, and that pattern continued to re- repeat, even though like I was more conscious of it. So I tried to pull it back and the little wounded, you know, girl in me wanted the attention and didn't know how to get it if I didn't sexualize myself. Right. Even if it was in a way of, you know, a, a photo or something like harmless it was still coming from a place of need instead of have and um in that you know little like i don't know sprinkle of like sexualization like you know i was sort of throwing myself under the bus like limiting my own prowess power femininity by saying like oh little piece of candy like look at me Mm. um so to that you know to that example it was because of that like wounded six-year-old in me that still so deeply subconsciously didn't know if I was worthy of love if I didn't put myself out there like that. And because of that, I was attracting, yes, badasses too, you know, you know, sharpshooters, males, but that were also coming to me because of the fact that I was sexualizing myself or in whatever wounded way, they were also sexualizing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, back to this idea of reflection and pattern, because I know that you just mentioned, you speak to the woman, but can you speak to then like how males show up in, in a similar way? Yeah. So with, with men, you know, there's a lot, there are still father wounds in men, right? It just shows up differently. So instead of not attaching to a, a role model and understanding, you know, how a man should treat a woman, how a man should play, how a man should kind of, you know, indulge in all the aspects of a personality and not just spend too much time in, in one particular manner, 
you know, that, that acknowledgement is actually missed a lot of times, even if you grow up with a father in the home, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, I talk to men now that are in the process of, of having kids and, you know, I, I spend a great deal of time talking about rough and tumble play and the ability to develop and mature optimally as a child by not putting them in sports right away not doing these things that you think will help them succeed as, as adults, but just to succeed as children. Right. And so in that same manner, when we talk about that in the here and now, they can actually go back to their own childhood and recollect and say, yeah, you know, my dad didn't really play with me. Like Mm. we threw the ball and we had, you know, one on one time, but it was all in service of improving a certain skill set, not just to figure out my boundaries as 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 a person, not to figure out, you know, theory of mind and theory of other. Right. Just trying to figure out, okay, that hurt me that must also hurt other people in a manner that you can actually start to develop this proto-ethic out of which, you know, adult relationships are going to build on. And so when, when men come in and it's more of a, you know, configuring out how their negative emotion is actually expressed, whether it's withdrawal or volatility or anger or sadness, and then seeing, well, why are those emotions so grounded? Like, why are you having those in response to, a withdrawal of expectation, right? Of, of not levying those roles and responsibilities at home, right? It's, it's, it's being annoyed about something, but not to the degree that you're actually willing to talk about it, right? It's, it's in the same manner that women fail to set up boundaries, mm-hmm. men also fail to set up boundaries. Or because they're in the dominant position, they feel like they don't have to. And so, you know, if they're not being taken advantage of in a relationship, they also don't see that if I don't set up boundaries for how I treat other people, not how I'm treated, but for how I treat other people, then I will actually fail to nurture or to you know show up for this relationship. And that's going to lead to my person actually doing things that will hurt me because I'm not showing up like I should, or I'm showing up like my dad showed up for my mom, right? And so it's the same, same things, right? Where do you wanna be? Where do you want these relationships to be? Where do you want this to look like in five or 10 years? And then how can you unroot these behaviors that are just reflexive out of your own patterns and, and past? How can you be aware of those? How can you shorten the time frame of, you know, getting angry and realizing, oh, that anger was a manifestation of how I interpreted this event. And it wasn't, you know, my partner's fault or it wasn't my kid's fault. That's just my expectation of what should have happened. Mm. Was my expectation realistic? And in that manner, if I had a realistic expectation that was broken, can I then go to my people and say, hey, this is what I expected to happen in this circumstance. It didn't happen. And that's why I got upset. And that's why I took it personally. Is there a way that we can actually figure something like this out again to where if this happens, that we can change it? Right. Because I don't think my expectation is off. And the other side of that, if the expectation is unrealistic or there's something there that's from, you know, let's just say a man grew up in a home where mom did everything, right? They cooked, they did the dishes, they cleaned the house, they did the whole, you know, mom caretaker role. If that's what they assume the role of wife and mom is, they're going to unconsciously take that to their partner. And to the degree that they are similar to the the man that they grew up with in the house, they're going to expect those same things to be done. And a lot of that times it's not discussed in premarital counseling or in a relationship right off the bat is, hey, I grew up with my mom doing X, Y, and Z. How do you perceive of the feminine role in a relationship to be? Match those up. 
or figure out, okay, I don't need you to do this, right? We can share this burden or we can do whatever. But if you don't have that conversation, it ends up getting past this honeymoon phase. You get past this intimacy and, um, you know, the early stages of romantic love and you get into this commitment part of, of what it means to be in a relationship. And that commitment is so much harder to maintain if you don't have common ground, if you don't understand what each other expects out of the other person. So you start putting these things under the rug. It's not big a deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. Eventually, you're going to trip over that rug and realize that I'm upset about all this stuff that now I'm so disconnected from that I don't know what I'm upset about. Yeah, right. I think it's so interesting. Like with that, it's like this male and female archetype, like what you, your parents or whomever raised you, it's you unconsciously are sort of, that's what you think that the masculine and the feminine are. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in a home where like my father's super hard worker, emotionally detached, so much love, but like his, I crave quality time. And what I came to understand is like, he did the best he could with the tools that he had and what he did was so magical. So I love you, dad. With that, you know, my mom was really the caretaker and also played the dual role of like, she was like the T-ball coach mm-hmm. and my dad sponsored the team, but she was clean everything. And so I think so much of younger Olivia resented my mom because I was more like my dad and I wanted my dad's attention. And I was like, took on this like almost masculine energy of doing. And I was so afraid of just being in the event that I would become homemaker, housewife, et cetera. And the other side of me, the femininity really wanted that too and still does. But there was this um, push and pull of seeing these two people in my life and in relationships, the irony is I would enter relationships bold as I am and I would like dip in and dip into this sort of wounded feminine that needed a man to take mm. care of me. So I would show up as one thing and shift and then sort of ended up being a push pull and exploded because my expectation of then needed to be taken care of by this person who didn't see me as that in the right. first place. It's confusing. Completely confusing. And then there wasn't communication. There was no boundary. Um, and the rug got, you know, became a mountain. We both tripped. There was a fight and it exploded. Yep. And there wasn't the con, the, like the communication, the tools on either end to really discuss it because all of this was subconscious. So in my relationships, as I've gotten older and as you've come to sort of coach me on in many ways, um, I also showed up from this, you know, trauma, like traumatized place of not having the sovereignty of my voice, feeling grounded enough in my feet to be like, no, to really stand up for myself. And when you don't stand up for yourself, you get taken advantage of. Yep. And the patterns repeat. So, so much of my now, you know, present work but past work too has just been like understanding why things happened as they did and why it wasn't about the other person they were just reflecting me my lack of boundaries and theirs and this ping pong match of it's really a reflective realm you know we're all just reflecting each other and um it is a dance it is a dance and even in in a heterosexual relationship in any relationship it's like that masculinity and femininity like there's times when like you know, you, you play off of each other. Someone needs to be held. Someone needs to do the holding regardless of gender. Um, so it's interesting. And it's interesting that like relationships, again, it goes back to this idea of like our relationship internally is just a reflection of everything externally. Yeah. So I'm 36 and I do want to get married. I do want to have babies more than anything. And I've never felt more ready for that because I've done so much internal work to understand why I wasn't ready. Yeah. Why I was showing up wounded, why I was replaying these patterns, why I sexualized myself or needed to be seen or was attracting 
men who sexualized me or um, I always felt betrayed because I had no boundaries. Like, so where I am sitting now, it's been such a true honor in my own journey to see the evolution of self Mm -hmm. and to not blame anybody for my experience, but just to own that, you know, I am who I am because of me and I am where I am because I'm here. And like that in itself, this breath, this moment is a gift. Um, and I want to share that gift, yeah. you know, from a, a place of clarity and a knowing that it's never going to be easy. Like, you know, relationships, they shouldn't be so hard, but you're dealing with another person. Yeah. Well, and, and to that point, the exercise I have people do once they identify that they don't have boundaries or that they have you know, very superficial boundaries of, you know, I want to be. I don't want to get yelled at. I don't want to get cussed at. I don't want to be, very simple things, right? The, the best exercise that I've found is actually to have people through the lens of self-love write themselves vows like they would do for another person in, in a marriage mm-hmm. and, you know, express themselves. What are your own vows for yourself? How mm-hmm. do you show up for yourself? Where's the love for you? And once they do that, they have a playbook for how they want to be treated. Like, this is how I want to treat myself this is what I expect other people to also respect. And if they don't, you've got a playbook for how to navigate those relationships. So if someone transgresses or flirts with a boundary you know, on your first date, you, number one, you know that it's there. And then number two, you can let that person know, hey, you know, you, you said this in this conversation and I just want to let you know, like I have a very strong feeling about this and how it means for how I show up for myself you cross that boundary. I want to let you know it's there so that number one, you can think about it. If it's a non-starter for you and you, you can't, you know, avoid, you know, stepping on that boundary, then, you know, thank you for your time, but this is already not going to work for me. And if you don't have those set up, you're much more willing to oversee it because the guy's really cute or whatever the situation might be. And you're like, it's not that big of a deal. That boundary was kind of loose. I'm not really, you know, in love with it, or I can help them understand me better in the future. Right. But if there's that expectation that you expect them to adapt to your boundaries as you lay them out over time, like you said, if you show up as person one and then you develop into person two, because now you feel like you've, you know, you've opened up, you can be a little bit more vulnerable. The femininity kind of comes a little bit further, but they're still stuck in their same space. They're going to be like, who is this person? Why is she no, why is she so needy now? Like we were going out all the time before and now if I go out, she's like, blah, 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 right? So if you don't understand how you want to be treated at the fundamental core level, you're not going to defend yourself in that manner. You're going to let people step over your boundaries until you get to one so close that it blows up, but they've already navigated your whole maze and they're at the mm-hmm. center of it. Yeah. And so then it's a real mess because it really is on you and your responsibility to let people know that what they're doing is inappropriate or just not going to fly for you. And if they get past those boundaries, it's too late. You can't tell them at this point, we've been together for two years and, hey, I don't like the things that you're doing here. Like, mm. Okay, I've been doing it for my whole life. Right. What are we going to do? Yeah. Right. Whereas you have, the most, you have the most malleability when you first start to date someone because they're excited to meet you. They're excited to kind of make changes for you if they need to be, but if they don't know that that's going to be a caveat for the relationship with you, you can't just say it two years in and say, Hey, if you love me, you're going to stop doing this, this, and this. Right. Like that ship is sailed. 
right? Yeah, completely. And I think, again, it's like this idea, I always say, like, you have to learn yourself to learn to love yourself. Absolutely. And I love your mention of vows because in my journey post-breakup six months, like, I made such a conscious effort not to date. Like, no interest, like, total, like, celibacy, not dating, like, not even, like, scrolling on apps because I was bored because... I didn't want to date myself any longer. I wanted to marry myself. Mm -hmm. And in that marriage, it was like, I needed to create the space to understand what didn't work so that I could look within myself, see how that was a reflection of me, change these things, you know, really give myself the vows, like create this sturdy relationship with me, the boundaries that I desire so that I could reemerge in this world and really call in a partner who could um, meet me where I am. Yep. His younger version of me and, you know, so many women who I love and I hope hear this, they jump into the next thing because they're looking for daddy to save them, looking for the man to swoop in, Prince Charming, their king, etc. And so much love for that. And if you don't create the space, you don't know what was wrong. You can't actually see the reflection as just uh, like a literal doppelganger of yourself. And that's been such like so helpful in my work yeah. and understanding that like, I do have a voice, I do have sovereignty and I come from, you know, a complex background and in, in feeling, you know, less than in a lot of ways, especially in a male dominated or relationship. Um, but knowing what I know now and not having, I would never change anything of the past but I'll never walk the same path in the future. Right. Like I matter so much now. I love myself so much now. And I think from that love, I create a different sort of love, Yeah. Um, which has been just profound in a lot of ways and profound in the knowing of like, young Olivia just wanted love, but yeah. the love that she was attracting was, it was wounded love. Yeah. I do want to kind of point out the opposite in that scenario too, is, you know, when, when women have a role model of, of father that is kind of, submissive or, or beat down or really in their feminine mm -hmm. and they see mom as more of the masculine position too and how they kind of rule the, the especially now with feminism so prominent and how you know women really don't need a partner that has stability because they can really do it on themselves and so if you have women that are in a very high powered position where they really have so many more options from a male counterpart position that they can kind of pick whoever they want they don't need that person to actually prove themselves as someone who could take care of them, even if that's not what they wanted. Mm. So, you know, a, a lot of women that I'll have in the practice that are just, you know, disenfranchised with their mate choices or, you know, they just figure like, hey, I can't find anybody. Like, what's 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 wrong here? I mean, I know I've got a great job. I have these qualities. I have my own house. I have, you know, I don't need. So why can't I find someone to kind of match my energy and really help me? get even further, right? My Venn diagram or, or my circle is full of all things me and self-love, but they start to look after these these men that have their own brokenness as either a savior complex to try and go fix, right? They look for these, these, these kind of weaker men that might have a um, persona on the outside of being masculine, but you know, on the inside, they're, well, they're Peter Pan or there's some other issue where they also haven't grown up or faced things of, of what they're coping with. And in the same manner, right, if you don't love yourself to the same degree, you're going to fall into someone who needs that help that you think you can provide them the maternal care that they've either skipped because of their own passionate pursuit for success. Mm. Um, but again, that's a it's a misplacement of what they want from the maternal side and how they're putting that into an adult man to care for 
as if their mother did the same thing for their father, and that was their example. So in the same way where a lot of women will look for the masculine in another individual, a lot of women look for the feminine in another individual too, that they can also dominate and have a kind of controlling position over, right? Mm. Because if women pick someone that they can control, number one, they don't have fear of rejection, they don't have fear of loss, they can really stunt or they can really um, mitigate the fear of losing that person right and so you see this with women that kind of have a proclivity to, to date men that other men would say hey what are you doing with him like he's mm. he's not as attractive as you think they would be or you know they're overweight or they have different habits that you'd kind of think you know that's not attractive like what what are you what are you doing and you know i've had multiple women that kind of have that um that narrative that if and it's subconscious completely because you they wouldn't say that they're dating someone ugly right. but on the same token, they, they kind of know on an intuitive level that they could get better. They deserve um, better to some degree, but they've either been hurt in the past or they've been shown that, you know, either from infidelity in their family or something else, that if you pick someone that has more status or more to kind of give, that's also associated with a higher proclivity not to stay, right? Less commitment. And so if they're looking for someone with more commitment, they're less likely to get the intimacy and they're less likely to get the romanticism that they want. And that broods bitterness and resentment later on in that relationship. So then they're going to be more likely to seek novelty outside of that relationship. Right. So there's so many different patterns and, and there's so many different ways to kind of take it. But if you go back to the baseline of what do you love about yourself? What do you have to offer another person to augment life? Not to make up for something, not to fill a hole, but how can two people come together to make life more abundant and not stress each other out? Right. Yeah. I, the idea of creation. It's funny when you say write vows to yourself. I often have clients write their, their ideal mate, mm. partner, and it's just writing themselves. Yeah. And so then I read them, you know, they read it after and it's like, you've just described yourself or are there holes here that, you know, you feel like you can work on certain parts of this? Because it's not about, like, what you want. It's about who you are. Like, really, who you are. I believe that. And I, I believe in the magic and mysticism of, of energetically attracting where you're at. So in this idea of coming full circle to functional medicine, I know use a variety of tools to bring people back home, whether it's medication or supplementation, um, and also, like, ketamine-assisted therapy, because oftentimes a lot of this is subconscious. So... Obviously, I've I've done a lot of work in psychoassisted therapy. You speak very clearly to this. You can actually listen to our last podcast, which goes deeper into it. But you know, tell me more tools when people come to you and like sort of you're holding them in a bit. You might then introduce some of these therapies to uproot and unearth patterns so they can find more home within. Yeah. So a lot of it is really just talking and communicating, right? So. You know, if we have a certain amount of time, and especially if we've gotten to the point where their blood work looks really good, like they're feeling good physically, they're, they're having good energy levels, they're sleeping well, a lot of the functional medicine fundamentals are taken care of, that leads and begs questions into, again, are you content with where things are? Are there areas of life that we can still work on? And that begs more of a conversation around their mental health, their affect, their, their different um, understanding of how things worked out to be where they are currently but you know obviously from the mental health part of the practice I mean, we have the transcranial magnet so when people actually have emotional disturbances right whether it's legitimate depression or anxiety or ptsd or some actual uh, condition that we're treating it's always through the lens of 
here's the neurobiological basis for what's going on for the most part, right? It's not inflammation because we're taking care of inflammation. It's not your gut because we're taking care of your gut. These things are residual because of the way you narrativize your past and the way that that narrative is continuously giving you these ruminative thoughts or just disentangling what is real and what is true and what people want to see as truth versus what their brain is actually telling them is true about the world. And so getting people to understand that sometimes how they're portraying how the world is laying out is not actually true and you're reality testing some of those things, but to also go deeper and to say, there's really not much we can do to change that perceptual lens until we get you away from it. And so that's where ketamine and the other, you know, psychotherapeutic tools um, with psychedelics come in. And again, with the magnet also helping reinforce those neuroplastic changes of thought patterns and underlying goals and desires. So opening up the world to the potential of what's available, giving people handouts and just giving them information, the blogs mm -hmm. that are written and so forth, they can go and do their own reading and research and so forth and come back to me and say, this is really interesting. Tell me more about this particular avenue. Tell me more about this. Tell me more about this. Instead of me trying to say, hey, you should do this. It'll help you get this and help you do this. And that. It's like, I'm not trying to sell anything, right? It's more about planting seeds and them going to actually fertilize and water those seeds into something that makes it feel like it's more on them. It's in their control to say, all right, it's been a few months. I read this. I'm actually interested. Can we talk more about this? Can we have a conversation about... I'm really anxious about losing control. I'm really anxious about X, Y, and Z. And then we can just kind of walk through it and talk. And, you know, again, just like our conversations, like we talk about medicine, but then something comes up and we have a whole conversation about, you know, I had a breakdown. I cried in my car. I did something, you know, and, and just holding space for someone who doesn't have someone to have those conversations with, even their close friends, that they feel like they can't divulge information because, Either they're judgmental or they haven't had someone to actually support them as a true friend. And then, you know, they come in to see me and it's more of just this, hey, how are you doing? Right. You know, tell me, tell me about your life. You know, I'm not just looking for, oh, things are good. Yeah. Right. And so really kind of opening up and having a, I hesitate to say this father-like presentation, but it, it kind of is just a Rogerian sense of, hey, um, there's no judgment here. I just want to be here to support you and whatever is going on and maybe help you kind of identify some things that we can improve upon. Um, and if we don't, at least you can air things out and just consider talking about it in the future. Right? So there's no pressure. It's always just a very candid conversation about how things are going affectively. Like what's their mental health life? How is their meditation practice going? If they're doing yoga, like how is that manifesting in differences in how they perceive the world so really there's no there's no schematic for how it goes mm -hmm. you know every day every person's going to be different and so I think just coming in with a blank slate of what to expect is really helpful because I'm not thinking about it beforehand right and so I mean, if something yeah. pops up you know we just we just roll with it it's similar like back to you're sort of shining light on shadow if shadow wants to come out so then people divulge and you're also just reflecting meeting people where they are mm -hmm. I think so similar to how I work with you know clients not from a functional medicine perspective but the idea of just holding space is so that you can bring people deeper into into themselves it's the idea of just like learning you to learn to love you and then internal reflecting external so um thank you for being yeah. that light and being such a pillar of knowledge, information, resource for me and so many people that I've sent to you. Um, you've done, I could never express the amount of gratitude. Just thank you for not only holding space for me, but so many people I love. 
Thank you. Of course. I want to end this with like, I have all these questions on the top of my head with like some quick fire just answers for those curious. Um, are you open to that? Yes, do it. Okay. Alcohol, good or bad? I'll cut you off. It's too long. So the, the literature is pretty clear. I mean, there's, there's the French paradox or some other, you know, studies that kind of correlate one, two, or kind of three drinks a week with improved health. But I think, you know, if you actually look at that data and parse out the unhealthy user bias and the healthy user biases, there is no good evidence that any amount of alcohol is healthy for you. Mm-hmm. Um, even if we're thinking about resveratrol or, you know, the different effects of alcohol as a hormetic stressor for, you know, you know, improving antioxidant potential. It's just, it's, it's not a good strategy, you know, if, if you want to do what's most healthy. Now, do I think that having two or three drinks a week is going to be detrimental? No. But again, unless you're doing everything perfectly and you don't have any desire to lose weight or to maintain your body composition in, in a way that's just harder to do, you know, if you're, if you're around 15, 20% body fat and you're happy with that and you have a few drinks, it's not going to derail you. If you're trying to compete and do something at, you know, 10% or 12% or, or really try to refine your, your physique, <laughs> it's going to be a no. So I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say, I'm going to, I just piggyback on that and be like, I think for me, it's just like, what's, what's the why? Why are you doing it? Yeah. Um, caffeine. Yes. Good for you. Yes. Tell me why. So caffeine and nicotine both. So this methylxanthine class is really substantially improving blood flow. It helps with, um, performance. I mean, caffeine is one of the top three performance enhancing substances for actual physical performance. Um, I think with how it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system in a gentle way, I mean, again, this is all dose dependent. So if someone can't tolerate caffeine, it's not going to be good for them. But for the majority of the population, like caffeine is a great tool to improve cognitive performance, to kind of help with cognitive decline later on in life too, and increase blood flow to the brain. So I think it's kind of a win across the board for, you know, using it wisely. Uh, testosterone supplementation for men. Yes. Age dependent, fertility goal dependent. So there's a lot of nuance around that conversation, but generally speaking, more testosterone within the physiologic parameters is better than less. So for all these quick fire questions, do your research. Caleb has an incredible newsletter, um, but high level. Yes. Okay, great. Uh, sugar alcohols. There's this one bar that I love. It has like one gram of sugar and like eight grams of sugar alcohols. And what, what does that mean? So, well, sugar alcohols are, are essentially non-caloric. So they're, they're either metabolized in a way that doesn't um, produce a, an energy or doesn't give you energy as an individual to then promote you know, caloric intake. Or it's not metabolized, it just kind of goes straight through. So obviously with some of the sugar alcohols not being metabolized, it pulls water into the colon and can give you some more you know, diarrhea or something like that, right? In general, though, the non-caloric sweeteners are going to be a lot more healthy than caloric sweeteners, right? So if, if the choice is stevia or allulose or, you know, sorbitol or any of these other, you know, sugar alcohols, I think those are a much better option than actually using sugar or honey or maple syrup in, you know, quantities that you're probably you know, consuming in, in a bar. Um, if there's one aspect of research that's just kind of um, in the gray area, it's on the microbiome. So whether or not these sugar alcohols are impacting metabolomics in the microbiome is I think a pretty hot area of research right now. But from a metabolic perspective, sugar alcohols are, are a net benefit. There's a lot of talk around Ozembic, Munjaro, uh, shots for weight um, loss or maintenance, good or bad? 
95% good. Okay. Wow, you heard it here first. Um, what else is on top of mind? I have to look one more time because I had so many. Oh, uh, ketamine treatment. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, I mean, again, with, I mean, it's definitely, <laughs> that conversation is definitely more nuanced, but yeah. I would say if people are. Or psychedelic assisted therapy as a whole. Yeah. I mean, it's, you got to be careful. I mean, it's, was it young that said, you know, be careful of unearned wisdom. And I think there's a, a level of importance to that where you kind of, you, you fear opening these doors if you're not ready to actually see what's behind them. Mm -hmm. And so to the degree that someone is really focused on what their goals are, what their integration topics are going to be, what their intentions are, it can be a really good way to facilitate moving in that direction and kind of, again, getting ego dissolved from making decisions. But if, if someone's just doing it just kind of out of, out of for, for fun and they get exposed to things that are basically telling them what they're doing is wrong or they need to change something and they can't or they're not in the position to make those changes, they're going to live a discordant life, which is going to make things actually a lot worse. So, you know, I think for the most part, expanding consciousness in a way that makes you feel more spiritually connected on a universal level is beneficial. Yeah. But I also think there's some respect that has to be had going into these, um, intention therapies. Yeah. yeah. Even, even if there is intentions, like if you have an intention to know yourself better, like what is that really about? Do you want, do you really want to know right. yourself better? Are you ready for <laughs> something like that? Uh, I don't know if I was, but I sure glad I did. Yeah. Um, Lastly, cardio just came to me to ask. So I want you to define cardio for me. High intensity workouts. Okay. Oh, yes. Well, so I would say you're probably going to say like short sprints, like uh, the assault bike mm -hmm. or not prolonged. Tell me. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of zone five, six. So like highest heart rate as possible, really getting using the that first energetic fuel system, the creatine phosphate. So you got about 10 seconds of full on all out activity that, you know, really best promotes enhancing VO2 max. So I think most bang for your buck, you're gonna be better off doing high intensity interval training to the degree that your muscles are just wiped out. Like, so for me, that looks like around six of these kind of inverse Tabata. So 10 seconds off, 20 seconds rest, full out sprints to where, you know, you really just can hardly walk yeah. afterwards. But I, I don't do anything steady state. Um, fair, lastly. Red meat. I'm a fan. Me too. Um, so to summarize, learn yourself, love yourself, find a functional medicine doctor if this work speaks to you, um, and I think trust trust the journey. I mean, what is everything you need is inside? What does that mean to you? Uh, I mean, it's a loaded question because obviously my work is a lot of outside stuff yeah. going in. Right. But, you know, I think when it boils down to it, I mean, there's, there's an innate, there's an innate knowing that your body has of where it wants to be homeostatically, right? You want to be not hungry. You don't want to be, <laughs> you don't be horny all the time, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to be thirsty. You don't want to be needing, you know, your sodium to be in balance. Like from a perspective of reaching nirvana is in having no needs, like that's where the body wants to be to the degree that it knows that, right? If it's not manipulated by environmental um, signs, like, you know, a McDonald's sign that kind of makes you want a hyperpalatable food, 
you have to mix what the body is learning to do based on the environment and what is optimal for the body to do. So balancing out how to reverse different trends that your brain is perceiving and the narrative that's being told to actually pursue different avenues and, you know, reward structures and kind of what people seek out to get, you know, their, their positive emotion and their feed forward into the dopaminergic, the dopaminergic pursuits and so forth that a lot of times needs rewiring. Mm. And so when people are wired incorrectly, everything they need is not within, right? It's actually kind of bastardizing how they should be pursuing appropriate, abundant life. And so, you know, for me, I think at a base level, you can always expect for someone to get back to a place where their body can mm. give them everything they need. But, you know, that's kind of what my whole job is about is getting back to the position where the body is able to return to its most fundamental process of survival. And yeah. it's not just survival in the sense that you're avoiding things that are going to kill you, right. but it's promoting survival in the next generations and leaving legacy. Yeah. And I would say even in the way that I interpret it, I was even thinking this morning of like my tools and answers are inside and I found this way, but I also found my way to you. Mm. So that knowing of like, oh, trust that I'm supposed to see that person, supposed to take this substance. So for me, loaded too, but like that knowing, that yeah. gnosis of like, sometimes it's just like, yes, when it's a yes. And when it's like, no, and the relation, maybe that person's a no. It's just like knowing that we have our answers. Yeah. So, um, People can find you at. So Instagram is at Dasign Health. Um, I have a, I think all the links uh, for like the Substack for the newsletter for you know kind of things that I'm promoting for, you know the top three things that kind of enter my my Dasign mm -hmm. right just things that I'm kind of paying attention to. Um, then I have the Patreon, which is where all my newsletters and videos and like this kind of content will go. Uh, anything that I put out for my members, like like the newsletter and the videos, will be there and, and and accessible and that really is just an outreach for you know i have my patient population that i kind of do all my things for but i want to expand the audience to be able to you know share those things with people that don't have access to, to me as a provider and so that's that's the whole idea behind on the, the patreon beautiful thank you so much yeah thank you thank you